you have your Bibles, we are in uh, Nehemiah, uh, the end of chapter 9, 938, because uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but the chapters and the verses aren't actually inspired by God. We came back in a long time after and added those in so we could find stuff. And uh, most of the time they're right on, but sometimes they mess up. And this is uh, an example of when they clearly kind of messed up when they did it, because 938 should be 10-1, but it's not. So uh, we actually start today's verse, uh, or today's scripture in 938. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use our Pew Bible, which is on page 271. Now, I'm not going to read the scripture before we get into it, because I'm pretty much going to cover most of it actually in the sermon. Uh, but what we're doing today is very interesting. I, I love preaching through books of the Bible because uh, God always surprises me with how he leads our church family. Uh, he's a lot better at it than I am. And what I've found time and time again is things match up way better than I could have matched them up. So today we are taking communion. And as we partake in communion as a church family, uh, we are renewing our covenant with God. Well, as fate would have it, as providence would have it, uh, as we come to Nehemiah chapter 9 and then all of chapter 10, uh, it's the people of God doing a covenant renewal ceremony. So we get to see the reasons behind why we do communion and why we do it the way that we do it. And this is something that I probably wouldn't teach on very often, but as it comes up in God's word, we get to touch on it. And then we get to experience it, which is what I really love. I don't want you just to you know, go, oh, that was a, a cool little experiment on communion. No, I want you to stay with us afterwards and go partake in this thing that God has called you to do as you renew your covenant with him. So I'll pray and then we'll jump in. But first, I want to give you just kind of a little bit of background on what it means to renew our covenant. Uh, because in our culture, especially here in America, we've kind of lost the idea of what a covenant is. Uh, there, there's really three covenants that you ought to have as a Christian, uh, or, or you can have anyways, and that is the covenant of marriage, uh, the covenant you make to other church members, and the covenant you have with God. But what we often do is we take something that's supposed to be a covenant, and we come to it with a contract mindset. Now, a contract is when two people come together, and we agree on something. But if you don't live up to your end of the contract, guess what I have every right to do? I can rip that contract up. So if, if we have a contract and you're going to rent my house for $800 a month and month after month you don't give me $800, guess what I can do? I don't have to let you live in my house anymore. I can rip up the contract because you broke your end of the deal. That is not how a covenant works. A covenant says I will keep my end of the deal no matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you pay $800 a month or not. My job is to provide you a house and I'm going to provide you a house. Do you see the difference in a contract and a covenant? And what happens is, is we have a lot of disaster going on in families and in churches because people treat uh, covenants like they are contracts. Uh, if you go back 100 years, uh, 120 years even, what you'll find is that the divorce rate in America and in the world is incredibly, incredibly low, like 8% of marriages. But what happened is over time, as we became more individualized, we took something like marriage, which is a covenant. That's why the man and the woman both say their vows separately. He says to her, I'm going to love you for better or for worse, richer or for poor. And she says, I'm going to love you for better or for worse, richer or poor. Do you, see what, do you see what those vows are saying? It doesn't matter what you do. I realize I'm marrying a buffoon and I'm going to love you anyways. That's what marriage is. It's a, it's a covenant. But when we come into like the 1960s and, and there's this thing called no-fault divorce, which is the exact opposite of a covenant, meaning we fell out of love or, or they didn't keep their end of the bargain. And so I'm going to give up on this marriage. Now, that's not to say there's not times in which a covenant can be broken, but, but it's certainly not 60% of marriages. It's certainly not 50% of the covenants that are made. Why? Because we have a contract type mindset. You didn't fulfill your end, so I'm not going to fulfill my end. Uh, I, I was reading an author 
a couple weeks ago, and it really opened my eyes to something that kind of amazed me because our culture is so different. But he was saying, if you go back 200 years, there was only three ways that you left a local church. There was only three ways that your membership ended. You were either excommunicated because of church discipline, you died, or you moved away. That was the only three reasons why somebody would give up on their covenant to one another. You say, well, the church people must have been a lot easier to get along with back then. <laughs> no, that's not it. But what they knew was we made a covenant to one another. We're going to love one another. We're going to work this out. We might get mad at each other, but we're still going to show up together. And we're still going to love each other. And we're still going to fight for this. Because why? Because this is not a contract. It's not, oh, the pastor fulfilled his end, so I'll fulfill my end. Or this church member over there fulfilled her end, so I'll fulfill my end. No, no it's we made a covenant. And even if you sit in my pew that I've been saying in for 20 years, I'm going to love you and I'm going to sit behind you and I'm not going to leave the church in a, in a fit. Do you see how things change? Now, when we take that mindset, that contract mindset with the church and the contract mindset with church members, what we inevitably do is we think that we have a contract with God and we do not. We have a covenant with God. And the reason why we take communion is we remember that covenant we made to him in baptism. Just like your covenant was made uh, at a wedding ceremony for your marriage, you ought to have covenant renewal. The Bible speaks of it this way. It says that every time we have intimacy, husband and wife, we are renewing our covenant. It's why Paul says you ought not keep from one another. Because you don't just make the covenant at the first. You make the covenant over and over and over again as you give yourself to one another. That's a covenant renewal. As a church family, we are to renew our covenant. You know how we do that? By gathering right here. Right now, we are renewing our covenant to one another. This is why in Hebrews 10, it says, do not neglect to gather together. And we think that's for our own spiritual health. I need to be at church for me. Well, that's kind of true. But more so than that, we're at church together today. You know why? For one another. Because it's like, I'm showing up again with you knuckleheads. I had a long week, and here I am again. You know why? Because I made a covenant with you. I made a covenant to worship God with this group of people. And so I'm here again. And this is what we must do with all of our covenants. We have to renew them. Because why? Because the flame begins to flicker out. There's a lot of love on the wedding day, but if you don't work on it after that, that flame's going to go pretty dim. You might have a lot of love on the day in which you become a church member, but, but if you don't renew that covenant, if you don't renew that love, eventually you're going to become selfish and you're going to forget the covenant you made. So we must join together often and remember that we have made a covenant together. And that's what we do when we come to communion. We remember the covenant we made to one another as church members, but we also remember the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. It's very important. And we do it the same way in the New Testament as they did it in the Old Testament. So I'm going to pray and then we'll look at this uh, and, and maybe you'll begin to understand why we do some of the things we do. Father God, uh, I need you. Uh, God, I'm weak. I, I am spiritually hungry and I need your bread. I'm thirsty and I need to drink a water that only you can give. And God, I know that the same is true for my listeners. God, we spend all week in the world just getting crumbs. And God, we come today and we ask that we would, would be fulfilled. God, that you would give us what only you could give us, that you would give us life to these dead bones. God, as we remember our covenant, we would remember your faithfulness. We would remember how good you are to us when there's nothing good in us. God, that you would fill us with your spirit and we would experience your presence anew. God, we ask for these things through the preaching of your word. And we ask them as we leave here in just a little bit and go across the hall and we partake in our covenant renewal. God, we ask for these things. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. So if you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 38, it says this. It says, in view of all of this, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement. We are making a covenant. We are making an oath in writing on a sealed document 
containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. So the first question you should ask is in view of what? It says in view of this, in view of what? Well, that's what we talked about last week. Last week, what did the people of God do? They confessed their sins. And then at verse 5, somebody said, stand up and quit crying. And what they were supposed to do was then confess the faithfulness of God. They would say, here's how we messed up, but here's how God saved us. Here's what God did. And this is why every time we take communion, what do we start with? We start with the gospel. I always begin by telling you not what you do, but what God already did on your behalf. Because you've got to quit looking at yourself. There's no answers in yourself. You've got to look to God and say, God, you are good. And so we look at Jesus Christ, that he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we were supposed to die, and he rose again. And you say, Blake, that's Christianity 101. <laughs> that's Christianity 101, 201, 301, 401. You need that every single day of your life. And the reason why we start communion that way is that you remember that your oath is not about you, but it's about what God has done for you. Remember that God always keeps his side of the covenant. Even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful to us in Christ Jesus. And this is also why we always read the Apostles' Creed together. We always read that, that first kind of old creed that the church has read together for literally thousands of years. Why do we do that? Because I want us to be reminded of our confession. And our confession is not, look at us, we're awesome people. We've got it all together. Uh, we are so morally great. No, that's not our confession. Our confession is we believe in God. We believe in His only Son and His Spirit. And we believe that our entire being, our entire standing before God and our standing before one another is based upon not what we do, but based upon what He has done. And this is also why the people, if you look at chapter 9, they confess their sins and then they say something about God's faithfulness. The reason why we always confess our sins before we take communion is not because I want you to feel bad about yourself. That's not it at all. In fact, if you leave a communion service feeling grieved over your sins or bad and guilty and shame, it didn't work. I did it wrong. Because what, the reason why we confess our sins is so that we can be more amazed with God's grace. That's why we confess our sins. Because as we look at the depths of our own sin, we see the beauty of God. It's exactly why when they're trying to sell you a diamond, what do they do? They, they, they put it in a black box. Why do they put it in a black box? Because it makes the thing sparkle. If they put it on somebody's finger, it wouldn't sparkle the same. But when you give it that black a backdrop, what does the diamond do? Oh, it looks beautiful. It looks three times bigger. It looks so shiny and you're ready to spend all your money on it. That's the same thing we're doing. I'm giving you the, the black backdrop of your sin so that the grace of God shines even brighter to you. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 9. That's why they have gratitude in their hearts. Because, oh God, we have sinned, but you have kept your covenant to us. And that is what we must always remember is that Jesus Christ has kept his covenant to us. Even though we sin week in and week out, day in and day out, because we are weak, we are reminded that Christ Jesus died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, his final words were, it is finished, totally complete, nothing else for you to do. The sin you commit next Tuesday, Jesus said, it's already finished. I already know about that. It's, it's already finished. It's already finished. And that's so easy for us to forget. And so why do we take communion? Because we remember, remember the grace of God that he's already shown us in Christ Jesus. Now, as we move on, you'll notice uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, is a long list of names. There's over 80 names. Now, to spare you and myself, I'm not going to read all of those 80 names. It's too early in the sermon. I would use up all of my speech. So I'm not going to do that. But if you would like to, you can read through that. And I will say, uh, it's not important to us necessarily, but I guarantee you it's important to the people whose names are listed there. And there's a, there's a great lesson there to know that God sees you as an individual. He sees us as a group, but God knows your name. God has your name written down. 
And I guarantee you, one day when we get to the new kingdom and the new earth, we're going to meet somebody. And they're going to say, I'm in the Bible. We're going to say, you're in the Bible? Who are you, Moses? Are you Aaron? And he's going to say, no, I'm Bunny. <laughs> what? You're Bunny? Yeah, you probably, you, know, you probably didn't read it that much. But I'm right there in Nehemiah chapter 10. Bunny. It's listed. And we're going to go, wow, okay. Because he's a real person. I want you to think about it. Like He, he, he put on his, his robe every morning. He walked in the sand. He had to shower. He had kids. He had a wife. He was just like you and I. And here he is in God's eternal word. So these names represent actual people. It represents that God actually cares for us. But uh, in verse 28, it gives us a blanket statement of what the people did. It says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who was able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God. They all came together and they did this. Here, here's the big idea from this. I want you to know that covenant renewal is to be public. It's to be done as a group. Uh, there's a, a big movement of private communion where you, know, you take communion by yourself. And uh, th- that is just completely unbiblical. Uh, if, if you want to do that as like a spiritual thing for yourself, I mean, I guess that's okay. But that's not actually in the Bible. The Bible always has us taking communion together. In public. Why? Because it's not for us just as individuals. It's for us as a body of people. We are the body of Christ. We partake in it and we remember not only our vertical covenant with God, but our horizontal covenant with one another. It is to be made in public. This is why your baptism is to be public. Just like your wedding is to be public. Why is your wedding to be public? Because, you know, you want to have a big wedding and have spend a lot of money and, you know, just really show off to everybody. No, it's because this pub, this public covenant that you're making with one another is to be seen by witnesses so that they can remind you and hold you accountable to the covenant that you're making. That is what makes a covenant a covenant. It is public in its display. And so that's why we do it. Now, uh, we, we must make a, an effort to give special space to confessing our allegiances to Christ where it hurts us most. That's what we see next. You see, they give a blanket statement of their allegiance uh, in verse 29. Before we get to that, it says this. It says, join with their noble brothers. This is uh, all the people surrounding. This is what they do when they get there. Verse 29. They join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to, fulfill, to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey all carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our God. Now, do you see what they're saying? By renewing their covenant, they're reminding the king of Babylon that he's not their king. Whose ordinances are we going to follow? Whose statutes are we giving our allegiance to? It's to God. And every time we come to communion, you know what we are doing? We're confessing that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. It's why it's kind of important for us to also do it in public, because it's a subtle way that we wage war on the culture of this world. You say we wage war by by taking communion, by eating bread and drinking wine. How do we do that? Well, because every time we do it, you know what we're doing? We're telling the world. We're telling everybody else who wants us to vow for them. We're telling the United States of America, the president of the United States, we're telling everybody around us that, you know what? We honor you as a person. We honor you as a leader. But you are not our God. Our God is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Romans 10.9 is a profound, profound verse. And we've really watered it down because we've lost some of the meaning behind the words. But Paul says this, and I'm sure you've heard this verse. It says, if you confess... With your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we have kind of taken that in uh, modern church history as kind of like a, 
almost a spell that she's, if, if I just say this out loud, Jesus is Lord, automatically I'm saved and I'm not going to hell. And that's basically, I, I know I had good teachers growing up, but that's basically the way my, my mind kind of took it as I listened to it. If I just said, Jesus is Lord. So every night I'd say, God, forgive me of all my sins and Jesus is Lord, because I was afraid I'd die in my sleep and go to hell if I didn't say that. That's kind of how I viewed it. But that's not actually what's going on here. This is actually a political statement. This is huge. Because in the Roman culture, you know who Lord was? It was Caesar. You weren't allowed to have any other Lord. You weren't allowed to have any other leader. And so here are these people at the risk of their lives saying, no, our allegiance, our faith is in Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And this is why many of them were killed. And yet, what did these people do? They changed the world. Because over and over and over, even to the risk of their own lives, they said, we will not say Caesar is Lord. We will honor and we will respect him, but we will not say that he is Lord because we have one Lord and his name is Jesus. And every time we partake of communion together, friends, we're doing the same thing. And it's, it's not scary for us because we live in a, a world that's not hostile to Christianity. But friends, you better get ready because it might just get that way. It might be a day in which we are publicly shamed and arrested for taking communion with one another. Because what we are doing when we are doing that is we're saying, you know what? The president, he's not my lord. He's my president. That's great. I'll respect him. United States senators, they're not my lord. Mayor of the town, not my lord. All these people who think they have control over me, they're not my lord. I have one lord. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you have to kill me because I said it, well, then go ahead and kill me. Because my allegiance and my faith is in him and not you. That's what we're saying. Another way that this is said in the New Testament is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is, again, a really subtle kind of thing that we don't pick up on because our culture is so different. But Peter says this. He says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Which, by the way, is what our government is supposed to do. If you want to know what the government is supposed to do, they're supposed to punish the evil and praise those who do good. Our, our government kind of punishes those who do good and praises those who do evil. But that's another sermon. Verse 15. For it is God's will that you will silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. And then look at what he says. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, you wouldn't think anything about that. But did you see what he said in verse 17? He said, honor everyone. And then he says, love the brothers and sisters. And then he says, honor the emperor. You know what Peter's saying? In this culture, the emperor was seen as God. And what Peter is saying is he's just another man. <laughs> you honor people and you honor the emperor. You know why? Because the emperor is just a man. He's going to die. We fear God because he is the one who's ultimately in control. We honor the emperor just like we honor the mailman because they are both just people. Do you see how radical this was? Do you see why the church had so many people die at the beginning? They weren't just like, you know, going to church like us, going, oh, praise Jesus, hope I get, you know, chills down my spine if they play the song I like, or, oh, man, I, you know, I hope the pastor has a good sermon. No, no, it was a political statement. We are overturning the world because the emperor, he's not God. Caesar, he's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king, not just over Rome, but over the universe. And we worship him and him alone. Now, I find it interesting that for the, the rest of the text, verse 30 through 39, we'll read it here in just a minute, they get very specific about the things that they are going to vow. Now, they said we vow to keep all of the commands of God, and you would think that would be enough, but that's not enough. They go in and they give specific things. Why do they do that? Because they know that we come to God and we give him total allegiance. It's not enough to give God you know, uh, allegiance over the things we want to give him allegiance over, which is what a lot of us do, myself included. Like, it's easy for me to say, Jesus, you're Lord. 
except over these things over here that I really don't know what to do with, and I have a whole bunch of excuses for why you can't be Lord over them. <laughs> and, and that's the way we, we treat it, but that's not how they're treating it here. What are they doing? They're saying, especially those things that I struggle to give up, I want you to know, God, you're Lord over them, and I'm going to obey you in these areas. This is why we always confess specific sins when we do communion. Uh, and I try to mix it up. Like to, Today we're going to look at the sin of sloth. And I'm going to ask you ten questions to make you think about specific sins. You know why? Because it's too easy for us to say, God, I give you allegiance over my life. But it's a lot harder when we come to the part where we say, have you been lazy about having a hard conversation with somebody you should have a conversation with? And immediately a, a name pops into your mind, somebody you need to go ask for forgiveness or give forgiveness to or have a hard conversation with. And immediately your heart will say, ah, I don't want to give God allegiance over that. And, and here's the truth, friends. Jesus Christ is either Lord over all of your life, or he's not Lord at all. Jesus doesn't come to take over partial kingdoms. Jesus says, you either lay down your crown completely and follow me, or you don't lay down your crown at all. He is king of all, or he is not king at all. I find it interesting that uh, the people have the same kind of struggles that we do. They struggle with their wallets and they struggle with their pants. Uh, same thing, all of human history. It's our money and what we do in our private lives that we just have a hard time giving up to God. And so as we read through these, a lot of these are cultural, but I think that you'll, you'll probably be thinking of things in your own life. And I wouldn't be surprised if for a lot of you it falls in these categories. Some kind of sin you're committing inside your marriage, some kind of sin you're committing with your money. Uh, verse 30, it says this, We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. Now, you've got to remember, in this culture, it was prearranged marriages. So they said, we're not going to give our daughters to non-believers. Now, we don't have prearranged marriages because of our kind of American culture, but I actually heard a pastor or a scholar talking about this uh, who went on a mission trip, and uh, he was kind of shocked that people still do prearranged marriages. And he showed up to this village, and the village elders were kind of all in despair about a church member. And they said, we don't know if we should allow this person back into the fellowship of the body. I mean, what they did was evil. It was so bad. And the missionary's like, oh my gosh, you know, what did they do? And the village elder said, you know, we don't really want to spill the, the dirty laundry. Uh, and he said, well, just tell me so I can help you out. And he said, well, this girl over here, she got married without asking her dad first. And uh, the, the missionary said, that's all? And he caught himself because the elders looked at him like, what do you mean that's all? Are you even a Christian? And uh, they said, have you read the Bible? And he's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD. You know, I've been to college. I think I've read the Bible. And he said, they said, have you ever read Ephesians 6, 1, obviously? It says to honor your mother and your father so that things may go well with you. How can you honor your mother and father if you don't even involve them in the biggest decision of your life? And the missionary said, at that moment, I realized that the American culture is shaped kind of the way I view the Bible. So in other places, it's a really important thing that you uh, have your parents tell you who to marry. Now, as a dad with a daughter, I really like that idea a lot. And if we as the American culture want to go that way, I'm fine with it. But that's not our culture. So if this was our verse, we would say, we will not marry somebody who is not of our faith. We vow to you, God, to find somebody who is following after the Lord. Because as for me and my family, we will worship you. Uh, Keep reading on verse 31. It says, When the surrounding people bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. Now, this one took a lot of faith. They're saying on the seventh day, when the pagans come and they're doing business, we're not going to participate. This is like Chick-fil-A. You know, we're not going to be open on Sunday. I know the whole world runs on Sunday. We're not going to be open on Sunday. Why? Because we trust God can do more with six days than we can do with seven days. 
And then, huge faith, especially if you're a farmer or a rancher, you can only imagine, on the seventh year, they said, we're not even going to touch the land. We're going we're to be wise with our money, we're going to be wise with our grain, we're going to be wise with our storage over six years so that we can build up enough to feed us for that seventh year. And we're going to let the rent land rest. Can you imagine how much faith it would take when you're in the third year and there's a drought? You're in the sixth year and there's a drought and you're looking at your storage bins and you're thinking, I don't know if there's enough in there. And you have to ask yourself, am I going to give my allegiance to God or am I going to give my allegiance to my work? Am I going to trust in God or am I going to trust in myself? And right here, what they're doing is they're pre-deciding. They're saying on that seventh year, we're going to trust in you, God. We believe in you. Our faith is in you alone. Verse 32, it says, we will impose the following commands on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, and the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So this was in addition to their regular tithe. They said, we're going to give so much of this money uh, so that we can do all the festivals and all the things we need to do as a family of God. Verse 34, we have cast lots, which would be almost like, throwing dice. We don't really have anything like that, but they would kind of throw these dice and it would uh, tell them what God wanted them to do, basically. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. We will bring the first fruits of our land, of every fruit and tree, to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock, as prescribed by the law. We will bring the firstborn of the herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings of every tree and of the new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. Basically, they're just repeating the law, but they're doing it because this has been an area of struggle in the past. So they have all these different tithes that they're to bring. They bring the tithe to the Levites because the Levites, professional uh, like religious workers, kind of like my job, but a little bit different, uh, since they were to spend all their time working in the house of God, they had to be supported by the people of God so that people would bring a tithe so that the Levites could live. Verse 38, a priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. In other words, it's not just give the Levites your money and trust them. No, this is also an oath for the Levites. You're going to do it in a way in which people are watching you to make sure that you're doing it correctly. Verse 39, for the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept, where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. In other words, the Levites need to bring their tithe also. They're not exempt from it. You tithe to them, they live on the tithe, but they take the tithe of the tithe and they tithe that. Why? Because we're all in this together. And we, as a group, will not neglect the house of God. Now, this is a huge theme throughout all of Nehemiah. If you'll remember in Haggai, the reason why the, the people had stopped and had stalled out what God wanted them to do is because they had neglected God's house. They lived in their paneled houses. They were worried about their own concerns, why God's house stayed in ruins. Now, you might be asking yourself at this point, why do a covenant renewal if I'm going to fail? Uh, especially as I've talked about money, I've talked about your wallet, I've talked about all the sins that are hard to give your allegiance to God to. You can begin to think, Blake, there's no reason for me to do this because I know I'm going to fail in advance. I don't want to take communion because I know that I'm going to fail. And here's the thing. We all are going to fail. 
This is why it is a great thing that it is a covenant and not a contract. (laughs) If it was a contract, God would have already given up on us. But it is not. It is a covenant. And God says, I will keep my end of the bargain even if you don't. And you know what our end of the bargain is? Our end of the bargain is not to do everything correct. Because Jesus did everything correct for us. Our end of the bargain is to keep showing up. I love what Doug Wilson says about communion as covenant renewal. He says, what is the good of renewing a covenant that we constantly break? The glorious news is that we do not keep this covenant through works of our own, but rather through faith in our Lord, the Lord of the covenant. He is the only promise keeper. And so we assemble to look to him to confess our sins through his baptism, to sing to God as his voice and to offer sacrifices of praise to God in his priestly work. It's all about what God has done. And there's only one way, friends, that you can break the covenant of God, and that is to stop showing up at the table. That is to stop showing up saying, God, I need more mercy and grace. The way that you break the covenant of God is to say, God, there's not enough grace for me here. I'm too far gone. I can't come to you. Or on the other side to say, God, I don't need your grace because I'm good enough. Both of those ways are the only way in which we break the covenant of God. But when we come to God, we must know that we're coming to a God who's given us unlimited second chances. If we come to him in a posture of humility and we accept his grace as a gift, we will always receive it. There's nothing so bad that you can do that would take away God's love for you because that love is based totally in what God has done. And this is why in a minute here, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing if the band wants to go ahead and come back up. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings back to God. And then we're going to go over there and we're going to share a meal together. And at the end of that meal, we're going to partake in the meal, the Lord's Supper, renewing our covenant to one another and to God. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the way that you are good to us. God, as I've been talking, these are theological ideas that are in the brain. They're abstract. They're kind of hard for us to touch and get our hands on. But God, I'm so grateful that you've given us the sacrament of communion as we feel the bread and we see it broken as it represents your broken body. We taste the wine and we remember your poured out blood. God, you've made the covenant visible to us. God, we can literally say that we have tasted and seen that which is good in your covenant. God, I pray today that people who are weary, who feel as though God might have given up on them, or that they are unworthy of grace, would come today and remember that it is a covenant. And in that covenant, you have promised to do all that is needed to be done for us. All we have to do is relax and to rest in your grace. If you would, friends, for 10 seconds, with your eyes closed, head bowed, ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? God, I pray that you would lead us to trust in your grace. Trust that it is enough. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. If my uh, ushers would come forward, we'll go ahead and do the offering. We always respond to the word of God in three ways. We respond by giving back to God what is rightfully his. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So we remind ourselves that our heart does does not belong to the treasures and the things of this world, but it belongs to God. And as they do that, we'll play some music in the background so that you can reflect upon the message further. And while you're doing that, I want you to think, because the way we ultimately respond is by leaving this place and being not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And then when they finish, Tiffany will have you stand up and we'll sing together. Let me pray over our offering real quick and then they can begin. Father God, thank you for all that you've given us. God, thank you that we have the opportunity now to give back to you 
what belongs to you. God, our faith is not in the things of this world, not in the monies of this world, not in the work that we do, but our faith is ultimately in you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.